It's called the black man is God. It's called the black man is God. Next album. This is for the children. You know what I'm saying? I got this idea from myself, of course. But this is for the children. I got this prediction. This will be the biggest upset in all of fighting history. The easiest fight of my life. You think your cousin can with me? You really do? Anybody on your watch? Anybody in my family? No. Ladies and gentlemen, it feels so good to be back. Oh, so good to be back. The preseason podcast of the year is back once again to hit you with the content that you're looking for. To hit you with that realness, that rawness, that dopeness, that flyness. Yeah, man, it's the first podcast of 2023. We took off January, you know what I'm saying? It was, it was the holidays carried over a little bit long. But we back again. We are back again. The preseason podcast of the year. For the new year of 2023, it's the Hip Hop Sports Support Podcast. I am your master of ceremonies. Justin Hicks, a.k.a. J. Hicks. It's glad to be with y'all again uh, on this Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. So much to get to. So much to get to. So little time. So much that I had to cover in this podcast because I hadn't talked to y'all since December. And, man, a lot has happened. So I'm grateful to be back again. And I'm so grateful for you guys to be listening to us. If you like this podcast, tell somebody and send them the link how about that tell them to subscribe how about that how about you subscribe if you haven't already go ahead and find a little subscribe button go ahead and click that and then anytime we put out a new podcast it'll be right there in your ear hole all right do do me that solid find us on twitter twitter.com slash hhs report tweet at the show i need to i need to start doing some more audience interaction if you guys have a subject or something that you guys want to hear about or if you guys have a question for me Send it this way. I, I look forward to answering those on future podcasts. But uh, yeah, man, it's, it's it's real cool to be back. I'm happy to be uh, with you guys. Facebook, we're on Facebook as well. You know, you can find us there. But just like and subscribe to the podcast however you can, however you listen to it, however you get to it. It's much appreciated. Uh, what are we going to cover today? Well, NFL playoffs. Uh, we have a Super Bowl matchup. Okay, it's the Philadelphia Eagles representing the National Football Conference. And the Chiefs of Kansas City representing the American Football Conference. I did not have that prediction. <laughs> I did not have that. Not at all. But I will tell you who I think is going to win. I don't know. It may surprise you. But we're going to get to that a little bit later. Uh, the GOAT retired again. Tom Brady. Who I will go to my grave. I will go to my grave. I got. I call this the Bobby De Niro. When you say the same thing over and over again, just to reemphasize the point, like Robert De Niro always does, I will go to my grave. I will go to my grave saying that Tom Brady is the greatest team sport American athlete in the history of this nation. I believe that. By the end of this podcast, you will too. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about the Grammy Awards and and what hip hop looked like at the Grammys. They had a big ceremony there to celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip hop. I'll give you my thoughts on that. 
But first, I wanted to touch quickly on LeBron James. Tom Brady, Jay-Z, Drake. There are a few people in the history of this website that I've talked about more than LeBron James. LeBron James passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in all-time scoring last night at the Staples Center. I don't know what they call it now. I call it the Staples Center still. I'm just one of those one of those old dudes that refuses refuses to conform. At the Stapler, LeBron hit a fadeaway jumper over some kid from Oklahoma City I've never heard of. Be honest, you haven't either. And he set the record right in front of Kareem, in front of Denzel, in front of Jigaman, in front of his family, his, his boys from Akron, in front of the world. Put his arms up and looked to the heavens like, finally, I have done this. Which is funny because he also he often also says, I never meant to do this. And then he's kind of like, finally, it's over. It's like, okay. But yeah, man, LeBron did it. Um, a few thoughts on LeBron real quick to, to start the show before we get into the NFL playoffs and, and Brady and, and everything else. I mean, I just... I, I want to, you know, I have to give credit to where it's due. So Charles Barkley, you know how I feel about Charles Barkley. If you don't, go back and listen to the Barkley podcast on our website. You can find it there. Barkley is known to have said that LeBron is the greatest sports story in American history. And I don't think that that's really inaccurate. When you consider where this dude came from, what he was up against, bouncing around as a kid, not having the most solidified family structure when he was younger and making a career that he's made for himself. It's, it's astonishing because I was there. I'm from Cleveland and you know, LeBron and I are the same age. You know what I'm saying? So I was, I was very much like, I was talking to my wife about this the other day. LeBron feels like a classmate. I didn't go to school with him, but it feels like he's a classmate of mine because of the times in my life where I have been, in his presence or a better way to put it he's been in my presence okay uh i've been around him before a couple times i you know i i know people that know him we've had drew joyce the second his high school coach on this very podcast in the past you can go back and listen to that in our archives there's there's a history there there's a tie there between lebron and northeast ohio which is where i'm from and where he's from and i was there when he was getting hyped up as the next big thing in professional sports. I remember when he was, you know, people had sports illustrators and and newspapers with him in it, in the hallways of my high school. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I remember that vividly. I remember him being a 17 year old junior and people saying that he would be the number one pick in the draft right now. And, Quite frankly, he was the most hyped athlete ever, ever. And all we do is hype these days. Think about it. What's not hype these days? Everything is hype. We got social media and everybody has an opinion. Everybody thinks their opinion is right. And all it takes is a like or a retweet or whatever to validate that opinion. And everything gets overhyped as a result of it. LeBron predates all that stuff and he was still the most hyped thing we'd ever seen to the point that he was getting crap for having chosen one tattooed on his back. And people were like, how dare you call yourself the chosen one? 
you know. And then, you know, he go he comes into the league with all that hype, with all that expectation, carrying the weight of the world and a downtrodden franchise with it that just happens to be thirty miles away from his hometown. It's a lot of pressure. Okay, he walks in the door with that. He scores twenty five points in his first game with the world watching, and he has exceeded every expectation that anybody could have had for him. If LeBron would have gone down as one of the top 50 players or top 75 players, you know how they had the, the, the top 75 they did last year with the all-star game in Cleveland. If he was one of those tops, if he was one of those top 75 players and maybe he finishes in the top 20 all time in scoring and he wins a ring or two and he wins an MVP or two, pretty good like i mean like that's that's better than like 99% of most nba players you know what i'm saying and he's so far and away blown that out of the water i mean again going back to barkley a guy who i grew up idolizing and who i've done a whole podcast about how he's historically underrated okay if you just look at the career the excuse me the career accomplishments and accolades barkley has one rebounding title no scoring titles um uh, one MVP went to the finals once no championships and he I believe is one of the 10 greatest players ever with that resume we're looking at LeBron now 10 trips to the finals four titles four finals MVPs probably should have been five he probably should have won one in a year that he lost the championship round Four, four MVP trophies regular season. He's fourth all time in assists, and now he's the leading scorer in the history of basketball. Like I, you know, it's just hard to wrap your head around all the accomplishments. And again, it's not it's not a, a unique or fresh take to say that he's exceeded the expectations, but he has. And I've written and said on this podcast before that one. You know, when I think about who the GOAT is in basketball, you know, my vote would go to Kareem because he has the six MVPs. He has the six championships, two finals MVPs. He was the all-time leading scorer. I believe he's like third all-time in rebounds and second in blocks, something like that. But in addition to that and all the all-NBA teams he's been on and all the all-star teams he's been on and all that stuff, Kareem you know, was the best NBA player for a large chunk of time. And then he was the best college player we've ever seen. And he was the best high school player we had ever seen. And all he did was win to win an, you know, an insane amount of games on all those levels, like state championships comes into college, winning national championships. What did he lose? Like two games in college goes into the NBA draft second year. He's in the finals. You know what I'm saying? Like Kareem's career is understated. And underrated. And so I had always felt like Kareem was, you know, the guy. Because even though we all love Michael Jordan, and I grew up, I was right there growing up with Jordan. Sometimes I dream he is me. Like I was, you know, I was right there when that was going on. 
the McDonald's commercials off the window, off the wall, off the court, off the backboard, off the shot clock, nothing but net. I, I was there. I was there for that too. And in spite of that, you know, Michael didn't walk in the door winning like Kareem did. Michael didn't, you know, he won in college, but he wasn't the man. He was a role player on that Carolina championship team. And then when he was the man, he didn't win. And he wasn't winning state championships in high school. He got cut from the team or the varsity team or whatever. So, like, when he, when you look at the totality of somebody's basketball life, I gave the nod to Kareem over Mike. And, you know, when you look at LeBron, the, the accolades are piling up. The longevity is piling up. By the way, don't let anybody – don't let – here's two things, people. Don't let anybody tell you that longevity is a bad thing necessarily, okay, because it's not. And don't let anybody tell you that losing in the finals is a bad thing, you know, or that – being three and zero or four and zero in the finals is more impressive than being four and six. That's hogwash. We won't have, we won't stand for it on this podcast, okay? But I mean, when you just look at the totality of his career, it's damn impressive. And you know, I think it's fair to knock LeBron still for what he did against Dallas in that final series. And if you want to say Mike Jordan's confidence we never saw it waver on that stage in that way even if Jordan wasn't perfect we never saw his confidence waver in that way that's fair but what we also have to be fair about is the fact that Michael came in without the expectations and hype that LeBron did as the third pick of the draft coming out of Carolina not the first or second pick he was the third pick of the draft he was not hyped since high school he was not the you know, 10 time player of the year or whatever coming into the NBA. So he didn't have that kind of pressure on him out the gate to excel. He did not have that. And Michael also did not have the social media era. Imagine how Michael would have dealt with that. We tease guys like Kevin Durant who get on social media and pick fights with people who try to trash him on Twitter, right? He creates a burner account and goes back and forth with, with bozos, you know, in the living room. Like, and and we, you know, it's like Kevin, it's like, really, Kevin? Like, how petty does that look? How silly and small do you look when you do something like that, right? That's what we say. Well, imagine if Michael Jordan had Twitter. Think of the kind of hothead and competitive, maniacal lunatic that we know Jordan to be. Like, think of if he, if, if you put a cell phone in his hand back in 1988 when he couldn't get past the Pistons. And people are tweeting at, ah, Mike can't get it done again. He's all about scoring. He's not about winning. You think Michael Jordan would have created a burner? Michael Jordan would have had 10 burner accounts going back and forth with people. You know what I'm saying? He punches his teammate in practice. Draymond Green punches his teammate in practice. There's video of it. Michael Jordan punches Steve Kerr in the face. Ah, you know, Michael, he was a fiery competitor. Come on, man. Like, I don't know how Jordan would have lasted. The gambling and... The, you know, the rumored affairs that he had, you know, all the off the court stuff, the retirement, who he's involved with. Like that stuff was a big deal back in 1993. Imagine how it would have spun out of control in this media landscape. You know what I mean? So LeBron, on the other hand, came in the league before that stuff existed. And his career has spanned to the point where it's been magnified by the advent of the 24-hour news network and social media and all that stuff that Mike didn't have to deal with. So when you combine that with the expectation that Michael did not have, LeBron is operating at a whole other level that Michael was fortunate enough 
never to have to grace. Okay. He never had to touch any of that stuff. All he had to do was go out and ball and ball. He did. But when we have these conversations, we have to keep that in mind. It appears as though Michael on some level cracked under the pressure twice and had to retire. You know what I'm saying? We don't judge it as him cracking under the pressure, but I mean, like, you know, he was going through a lot of personal stuff. He lost his father. Obviously he won his third title and he quit the sport in 93, wanted to play baseball. That's fine. But basketball clearly wasn't out of his blood because he came back 18 months later. It was still in him. He never, I mean, he probably never wanted to leave. And then he left the second time the team was falling apart around him. He couldn't get along with the general manager. There, there were no other options. So he just walked away. But the, the itch was still there, and he had to scratch it, so he came back with the Wizards, and for some reason we don't count that. Nor do we count the year in 95 when he lost to the Magic in the playoffs, even though your boy wrote an article about that that you can find on our website. I say all that to say LeBron, his career is very different from Jordan's and Kareem's and everybody else's that's on that level. And you can argue that even though the game has changed and it's not as physical as it once was the talent around LeBron in terms of his competition, the skill level of players in the league. It, it, it just happened in LeBron's era that it caught up with the number of teams back when Jordan played, they were expanding the number of teams and they didn't have that depth of talent in the nineties to properly furnace uh, all these teams that were, that were now in the league. And so I don't know, man. It's just stuff to keep in mind. That's all I'm saying. I know there's some hardcore Jordan people that are pissed right now at what I'm saying, and I'm not even saying that I would necessarily put LeBron ahead of Jordan. I think you could make the case that it's Jordan. You know, like I said before, the 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 Dallas series I think is fair game. And if you want to say, you know what, if 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 the fate of the human race, or if my life was on the line, and that player knew my life was on the line, and I had to pick one guy to win me a game, I'm picking Michael Jordan because we never saw his confidence waver like that. I think that's fair. But what's also fair is the cozy conditions by comparison in which Jordan got to play under the entire, by the nineties, by the time the nineties rolled around, the entire league was, you know, designed to insulate Michael Jordan. You know what I'm saying? Not to say, I'm not saying he wasn't great. I'm not saying he wasn't the best, but I'm just saying he was the cash cow. They weren't about to mess that up. Jordan got all the calls. LeBron doesn't see the Celtics game a couple of weeks ago on Saturday night. I mean, you know, this is just what it is. So again, if you want to have Jordan number one, I ain't going to argue with you. If you have Kareem number one, I ain't about to argue with you. If you have LeBron number one, I'm not here to argue with that either. I think any of those guys would be a fine choice as the greatest player that ever lived. I just think we need to tip our hat to LeBron James. Don't be a hater. I see the Jordan. I see the Jordan stands hating on LeBron this morning. Stop that stuff. That's corny. Don't do that. Just appreciate the greatness that you saw and understand that LeBron's about to extend this record for like another four or 5,000 points. You know what I'm saying? Like this thing, this is never going to be caught. You know what I mean? Not in our lifetime, probably. So congrats, LeBron. Greatest score the game has ever seen. And if you have any doubts of that, just look no further than the fact that he's fourth in assists also. The guy could have averaged like 33 points a game for his entire career if he wanted to. He would already have like 58,000 points if he really cared that much. And I think we'll leave it at that. Moving on to the Grammys. Uh, I did catch not all the Grammys, but I caught some of it the other night. 
it was cool uh to see that met uh that medley at the towards the end of the show that was saluting hip-hop's 50 years i found it funny that ll cool j had to give like a little disclaimer so that black twitter didn't get all (laughs) in a frenzy like where was this mc where was nas you know what i'm saying where was where was ghostface killer how come we didn't see mc8 like what's going on here like (laughs) that was funny to me ll was like we couldn't get everybody y'all just chill out it's not a big deal but this is this is the the selection of artists that we have here and so i've seen people say like so-and-so got snubbed it's like i don't know if snub is the right word for that for that um for that performance but i i think it was dope um i even saw somebody say that you know they should have honored some of the fallen mcs more there was no recognition of biggie or Pac. uh there was no recognition of you know other artists you know i mean that have come and gone big pun for instance comes to mind but you know again of the living artists that were there we saw method man we saw rakim uh saw grandmaster flash we saw you know I mean, we saw a lot of legends and we saw Scarface, which I love to see because I don't feel like he ever gets his flowers. So shout out to Face Mob. Queen Latifah was there. Um, LL was there. I'm just I'm just going off the top of my head as far as who I remember being in it. And then it closed with Lil Baby and Glorilla, which was interesting. Interesting choices there. I said on Twitter that it reminded me of when Tom Brady on that commercial handed all the rings to Baker Mayfield like, hold these. And then everybody in Cleveland was like, oh, Baker's next. <laughs> As if the fact that Brady handed the rings to, to Baker was like symbolic of Baker being the next guy. He was not the next guy. Um, and I don't know if Lil Baby's the next guy either. But, uh, you know, like I said, hopefully Lil Baby does a little bit more with it than Baker did. But, yeah, man, it was. A, I thought it was a dope performance. I got hyped a couple times watching it. It was cool. I thought the Grammys did right by hip-hop in that regard for a change some people were upset will smith wasn't there heard he was shooting a movie whatever um we saw offset uh and excuse me we saw quavo salute takeoff um in the uh segment in memoriam right where they honored those uh music legends who had fallen in the last year uh did not see gangsta boo on there i will i will mention that i ain't gonna make a big deal about it but r.i.p to gangsta boo she was not included in that she should have been but uh yeah it was it was interesting that supposedly quavo and takeoff uh excuse me or quavo and offset got into an altercation backstage and quavo didn't want offset to perform with him i don't know um but they were there and i thought quavo did a a nice rendition or performance to salute his fallen migos brethren as far as uh my favorite part probably of the entire show though was Jay-Z, Rick Ross, and Lil Wayne flanking DJ Khaled for the God Did performance um, at the end. I thought I loved it. I loved that it was out in the streets of LA. They blocked it all off and they and they did the performance live out there. And then they had this last supper like table there with Hove in the middle, giving us the best verse probably of 2022, which was just an incredible i mean like jay-z's 53 years old you know what i'm saying he didn't miss a beat didn't miss a bar you know i've seen jay-z flub a a lyric in 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 concert every now and again like you know or in a performance i've seen him and that's not you know there's no shame in that you know that that happens every now and again but you don't want it to happen often if you're an mc because then that shows a real sign of slippage not there was no slippage in this performance jay-z was dead on he caught all of the the profanity parts he he cleaned all those up he was on his a game 
very hot performance of God did at the end of the show. And as far as the winners of awards, I do have one quick thought on that. So Kendrick Lamar for Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers that won Rap Album of the Year. It was nominated for for Album of the Year overall. Um, uh, the Heart Part 5 also won like Best uh, Collaboration. Or, or, or No, it won Best Rap Performance or Rap Song. Something like that. Uh, I know Future won here. Let me just pull it up because I have it. I have it pulled up here. If I can find it. Here we go. So yes, uh, best rap song, the Heart Part Five, which was Kendrick. Best rap performance, the Heart Part Five, which was Kendrick. Uh, rap album of the year was Kendrick for uh, Miss Morale and the Big Steppers, and then best melodic rap performance, Future featuring Drake and Tim's. Um, so yeah, I mean, future winning, congrats to him, but my biggest issue with Kendrick winning, first of all, I don't have a real issue with Kendrick's album winning rap album of the year for the most part. I thought that was a a good choice. Good album. Um, I fear though that we're starting to veer into this dangerous territory with Kendrick Lamar and just... We've seen this before so many times. The Grammys are so predictable when it comes to hip-hop and how they treat hip-hop, okay? The Academy struggles mightily with being accurate with the awards that they give to the truest of rap artists. In other words, if you're like an artsy fartsy type of rapper, like a Kendrick Lamar, like you're going to be, you're going to stand to win a lot of Grammys. It doesn't mean that Kendrick's not dope. It doesn't mean that he's not one of the best lyricists. It doesn't mean that he's not a gangster rapper. It doesn't, you know, cause he can be, it doesn't mean that he's not great, you know, but what I'm left wondering is like, he won for the heart part five, right? So the heart part five beat out Churchill Downs by Jack Harlow and Drake. God did Khaled, Ross, Wayne, Jigga, John Legend, Friday, Push and P, Gunna and Future featuring Young Thug, Wait for You, Future, Drake and Thames. Okay. So that's, you know, I'm not here to like totally slam all those nominees. If if I were voting on it, I would have given it to God did of those five songs or whatever, but you know, it was a dope song that didn't get recognized. Johnny P's caddy, the butcher featuring J Cole, right? That song was dope. That was a song worthy of Grammy nomination to me. I thought it could have won. I think that was one of the best rap songs I heard last year. But Benny the Butcher is never going to win the Grammy. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, it's going to be, not never, I shouldn't say never, but it's going to be hard for a guy like Benny the Butcher to win a Grammy award. You feel me? Not when he's going up against, you know, Mr. Artsy Fartsy Kendrick Lamar. And and I I know that sounds like a diss. It's not a diss because I love Kendrick. But not when you're going up against Kendrick and not when you're going up against Eminem, who anytime he puts out anything, they they just give him the award. You know what I mean? And I love Eminem, but he doesn't deserve every Grammy he's received. But they just give it to him because he's 
he's white, you know what I'm saying? And he's, he's Eminem, he's recognizable in a way that these other artists aren't. And the people that vote on it, as we've covered in, in this, on this uh, podcast in the past, they don't have the full scope of understanding of hip-hop, hip-hop culture, and all that stuff. And so as a result, you see the same artists, or at minimum the same types of artists, get recognized at this award show. So I'm, I'm growing fearful that because Kendrick is accepted enough, like Kendrick got robbed by Macklemore years ago because Good Kid Mad City did not win the Grammy, but they gave it to the white dude, right? Same thing with Eminem that I'm talking about, okay? That, that, the white dude got it, and, and that's not, you know, that's what happened, okay? So to give Macklemore this award, Kendrick got screwed, um, and so now they're making up for it on the back end. Anybody that knows hip-hop like your boy knows that Kendrick Lamar is dope and deserving of 90% of the recognition that he gets, at least, okay? And the Academy knows that, too. So they know that they can get away with giving awards to Kendrick Lamar, whether he deserved it or not. Kendrick Lamar won the Grammy Award for Damn, a very good album, but it beat out Jay-Z's 444. It was not a better album than Jay-Z's 444. It was not. Damn was great. 444 was different because it, it, it was so much more depth to it and it hit people on a deeper level, especially from Jay-Z that we, you know, we hadn't seen him with that level of vulnerability. And maybe that shouldn't be considered into the voting aspect of it, but it did for me. And so I believe 444 was the best album that year, 2017, was it? Something like that. But they gave it to Damn, and Kendrick won the award. Now Kendrick puts out Mr. Morale and Big Steppers. Again, very deserving. But, you know, I'm just kind of left wondering, like, are we just in this position now where anytime Kendrick or Tyler, the creator, puts out something, they're just going to win it because their brand of rap appeals to the voters? Like, that's what it's feeling like. And so I don't want to get, I'm, I'm nervous of that. Like I thought, I thought years ago, Nipsey Hussle should have won the Grammy for rap album of the year. It was him. And I know, I think Pusha T at the time was making a big push. No pun intended for, for, uh, album of the year. I don't even remember what album won that year, but the point is, is that Nip and Pusha T gangster rappers that they are, it's going to be harder for them to get the recognition that they deserve just because the type of music that they make, it's not as relatable to the people that are voting, even if it is insanely relatable to the culture itself. And there's still a disconnect there that I think is problematic when we, when it comes to awarding these people certain things, you know what I mean? It, there's just a, there's just a, a, a gap like Cardi B won best album, uh, the best rap album Grammy, I believe a few years ago. Maybe she was the one. She might have been the one. It might have been her first album that beat out Victory Lap. But Victory Lap should have won that year, in my opinion. And they give it to Cardi B. And I don't know, you know, she's not the same type MC that Nip is. You know what I mean? It's just very different. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just worried that the Grammys are still kind of falling into the same trap. Even though they are trying to do better by hip-hop. And we, we're slowly starting to see improvements. I don't know the, well, I would say I don't know that we're going to see a Macklemore over Kendrick again. But if we get um, uh, another white rapper who's lyrically is on a level of an Eminem or something like that, that guy is going to dominate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's going to sweep all the Grammys. Um, and then we see Kendrick 
He can win rap album of the year all he wants, but the moment they put him up against the other albums for album of the year, he doesn't stand a chance. And we've seen that time and time and time and time again at the Grammy Awards. That hasn't changed either. Okay. And they say that a couple of rap albums have won the Grammy for album of the year. And they would say speaker box, the love below by outcast. And they say the miseducation of Lauren Hill and Lauren Hill and outcast are three dope MCs. However, if you listen to those three albums, are they as traditional hip hop from front to back cover to cover like you would get from a Nipsey hustle, from a Pusha T, from a Rick Ross, from a Nas, from a Jay-Z, no, it's not that. That doesn't mean it's not great. It's just not that. And that that I'm speaking of is the real music that really impacts the culture for people who really know what rhymers are supposed to sound like, who really know what you know sh- rugged street music is, which makes up such a big part of the culture. So I'm not saying that every hardcore gangster rapper or whatever should automatically win the Grammy over every, you know, more artistically inclined artist. I'm not saying that I'm just saying that those in artistically inclined artists and I don't, and I don't, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the, 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 the gangster rappers aren't in, are artistically inclined either, but that disconnect that's there. I just feel like the Grammys are exploiting that and they're never fully recognizing those other MCs that we see that really shift the culture for those of the culture. Cardi B's great. Is she shifting the culture in a way that Nip did? No. But she she does her own thing and she sells a lot of records and she's popular and she's on TV a lot and that's all well and good. Should she win a rap album of the year over a Nipsey Hustle? No. No, she should not. You know? I mean, the real rhymers need to get some more recognition too. Uh, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with it. So, shout out to Kendrick. I hope Kendrick, you know, uh, he seemed like he really appreciated this award because he got a lot more vulnerable on this project than he has in the past about his own personal life. And that was dope. So I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it. So shout out to Kendrick Lamar for winning the Grammy, but, uh, just some other stuff to consider. Maybe they should just let me vote. Moving right along. <laughs> oh my gosh. Tom Brady. The man is known as the GOAT for a reason. He retired just last week. He gave us his farewell. Um, I want to take a few minutes because I didn't do it last year, I don't believe. When he retired, when Brady retired, I think I touched on it. I think I touched on it, but I didn't really dive deep. It wasn't like the final send-off for Brady that I feel like he deserves, and I didn't. I didn't do that last year. And I feel like this year... He's really going to stay, stay gone. And um, I was sad to see him go out the way that he did against the Cowboys with no support whatsoever on was basically a pretty bad Tampa team. He dragged them to an eight and nine record and a division title, but they were not very good this year. Brady wasn't his best, but the team around him was a nightmare. And so, um, you know, I wish I would have seen him go out you know, in hindsight. It's like, well, damn, he should have just quit last year. You know what I mean? But Nick Wright had actually a great 
10 minute segment that I encourage you guys to listen to where he talked about, you know, the decision that Brady made to come back and how we wrestle with these decisions as professionals and chasing dreams and that kind of thing. It was really cool stuff from Nick. Um, so shout out to Nick for that. I, I do have to, you know, I, I can't, I can't give Nick Wright a compliment without a little bit of a, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got, I got to just point out that his, his, his love for my homes is getting a little out of hand, but you know, be that as a man, that's his hometown team or whatever. But Tom Brady, I just want to, I was having a conversation. I think it was with friend of the podcast, Anthony Houston, but I've seen a lot of comparisons lately of, of Brady to Bill Russell. And they say, Tom Brady is the Bill Russell of football. He's got all these accomplishments. He's won all these championships, but he's not the best player. And that's, that's who he is. And that's where it stands. And anybody that believes that, I would hope that they would seek help. Because it wouldn't, it couldn't be further from the truth. I think Anthony was not, I don't know that he was saying that. But maybe he just mentioned that he's heard that or somebody else said that. And my response to that is, no, Tom Brady's not Bill Russell. In fact, Tom Brady is Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Michael Jordan, and LeBron James all rolled into one. Whoa! Whoa! I get it, okay? I, I'm, a, I'm a stand. Whatever. Okay. Call me what you want. Call me your names. I don't care. Put your swords to my throat. I don't give a damn. Okay. I'm about to prove to y'all that Tom Brady is Wilt, Russell, Jordan, and LeBron rolled into one in football. Okay. This is what he is. And this is why, in spite of the fact that he's the most decorated athlete in the history of the game, he's the most accomplished athlete and what I believe is the best football player ever in the 100-year history of this league and this sport, in spite of that, somehow Tom Brady is underrated. It's crazy. It just bothers me that Brady has to accomplish so much to be given GOAT status. Like, people didn't really start to kind of try to close the book on who the GOAT quarterback was until after the 28-3 comeback in Atlanta. And it's like, really, though? It took that for you to finally give him his flowers? He already had four rings before that (laughs) and all these records and all this other stuff. But no, it it wasn't that it was the 28 to three thing. And now people are trying to, you know, they're trying to wedge something back into that discussion. They're trying to crack that door open again to rebirth that goat discussion because of what Mahomes is doing. I'll get to that in a little bit, but let's talk about winning. That's the Russell component that people are, are talking about. Well, Tom Brady, he's the most, He's the greatest winner football has ever known, okay? He walked into the game winning a Super Bowl, all right? That's what happened. He he was drafted the sixth round, picked 199 in the 2000 draft. Y'all know that story. You might not know that he was fourth, not third, fourth on the depth chart when he got to New England. And he worked his way up to second. Outplayed. Drew Bledsoe in the preseason of his second season with the Patriots, but they still gave Bledsoe the starting job because he was Drew Bledsoe and they paid him all this money and all this other stuff. But Brady was better and Bledsoe gets knocked out of the second game. Tom Brady walks in taking over a team that the previous year was five and 12 
and lost their first game of the season in 2001 and would eventually go on to lose the first game, the second game of the season in 2001. So if you're scoring at home in Tom Brady's first 20 games or so as a professional, his Patriots were 5-13, and 13, but he did not start any of those games. He became the starter the following week, and he never looked back. That year, he went on to win the Super Bowl, okay? As what I would consider a redshirt freshman in the NFL. Two years later, he won his second Super Bowl. The following year, he won his third Super Bowl. He won it in his his first season as a starter. He won the title, and then he won one at age 43 in his 21st season, okay? Seven-time Super Bowl champion in 10 trips. That's more Super Bowl championships than any franchise in the history of the sport. No quarterback has more than five appearances. No player has more than six appearances outside of Tom Brady. And he has seven wins. You feel me? Seven wins, not just appearances. He's won the damn thing seven times. He won 75% of his regular season starts, which is the highest of any QB with 100 starts. He won 73% of his playoff starts, and he won 70% of his Super Bowls. Okay? There was very little drop-off from regular season Brady to postseason Brady in terms of his ability to win. Does he deserve all the credit for every single one of those wins? Of course not. But he's the common thread in all of it. If you can't see that the connective tissue was wearing number 12 under center, I don't know what to tell you, okay? But Tom Brady is the guy who made it all work. If he's under center, you got a 70% chance of winning that game. Minimum. It doesn't matter if it's the preseason, the regular season, the division round, the wild card round, AFC Championship, NFC Championship, Super Bowl. Doesn't matter. 70% of the time, he's coming out on top. No other quarterback can say that. None. Okay. Not, not for this length of time. Not for even half of this length of time. That's the winning component, the Russell component, okay? Now let's get into some of the records. Here's the Wilt Chamberlain component of it. And again, we talked about the wins. Well, the, well, the winning component, yeah, he's got 251 regular season wins. Okay? 251. Last I checked, that was more, more he had more wins than Aaron Rodgers had starts in his career. Okay. And Aaron Rodgers has been around for a while. Okay. He has the record for most career completions, attempts, yards, and touchdowns. Okay. He's got the record for completions and attempts in a season. Guess what? He set that this year. Okay. He's got the record for best touchdown to interception ratio in a season. For those people that love that efficiency stuff, there it is. Best TD to INT ratio in a season in NFL history belongs to Brady still. He's got the most fourth quarter comebacks and the most game-winning drives in NFL history. He's got the most in the regular season. He's got the most in the playoffs. He's got the record for passing yards in a game in the playoffs. 505. 505 yards passing in a game. That was the Super Bowl, by the way, against the Eagles the second time he played the Eagles a game in which Belichick's defense gave up 41 points to a backup quarterback. I'm going to say it again. 
Belichick's defense gave up 41 points to a backup quarterback. And not even Tom Brady's 505 yards was enough. So there are some Brady detractors that will tell you that they were unimpressed by Tom statistically in his first Super Bowl win against the Rams or his sixth Super Bowl win also against the Rams because he did not put up big statistical numbers in those games, but his team won and they're angered by the fact that Brady gets credit for that. Well, guess what? Brady put up huge numbers in a game and didn't win. So it doesn't mean that he's not capable of putting up big numbers or carrying a team. It just so happens that he didn't win that particular game, but we'll come back to Brady carrying teams in a little bit. But he basically owns every passing playoff record there is. Okay? This is the Wilt Chamberlain statistical dominance portion. And then what do we think of when we think of Michael Jordan? We think of his excellence in clutch moments. Okay? This is a man from San Mateo, California that has six fourth quarter comebacks and six game-winning drives in the Super Bowl. Out of his seven titles, six times he led his team from behind in the fourth quarter or overtime to win. And six times he led the game-winning drive. That is astonishing, okay? That'd be like Michael Jordan. I know it's not apples to apples, all right? But that's almost like Michael Jordan hitting a game-winning shot in Game 7 of the NBA Finals six times. LeBron James wouldn't even be in the same stratosphere of Michael Jordan as Michael Jordan if, if he did that. If Jordan hit the game winner in game seven six times and won six rings doing that, it, no one would ever touch that, okay? But that's what Brady's done in the Super Bowl with all the chips on the table. And that's the thing with these these playoff numbers that w- what I talk about, like people don't understand that and I've said this on the podcast before, but people don't really understand that when I, we talk about these playoff accomplishments, records, statistics with Brady. This is against the best and most sophisticated defenses, generally speaking. I mean, these are the highest pressure situations, the most highest of high leverage moments with the most talented teams, the most talented defenses, the most talented offenses. So he knows in the back of his head, he's got to score a lot of points to compete with that offense and or the most talented defenses that he's that are directly trying to keep him out of the end zone. And he's putting up these numbers and having these performances with all the eyes of the world watching him. There is no bigger stage in American sports than the Super Bowl. I mean, the fact that Tom Brady left the field in the fourth quarter of all 10 Super Bowls with the lead. I mean, come on, man. He didn't win all 10 because the defense didn't hold it the whole time. Sometimes they did see Malcolm Butler for example but Brady did his job every time but again as far as game winning drives and fourth quarter comebacks nobody ha- nobody else no other quarterback has more than six of those in the playoffs since 1970 Brady's got six in the Super Bowl he's got the most fourth quarter comebacks and game winning drives in the playoffs period and this is something that we saw from him at Michigan okay We saw him in the Orange Bowl when he finally became the starter. Lloyd Carr finally came to his senses and put him in over Drew Henson. We saw Brady lead the Wolverines 
back from two 14-point deficits to ultimately win that game in overtime. So this isn't just something that he was doing. He was the comeback kid in Ann Arbor years before he did any of this stuff in the pros, which is how you know it's legit because it's been consistent. Much like Peyton Manning, (laughs) much like how Peyton Manning could not win the big game in college, got to the NFL and could not win the big game in the NFL. And he backpedaled in his two rings, being carried by his defense in both rings, in both championship teams that he was on. But I digress. Brady, he's clutch in his first Super Bowl. Again, with the Patriots, we saw him lead the game-winning drive against the Rams. He was a nobody at that time. John Madden's on the call telling everybody that they should just take a knee and go to overtime. Brady says nope, leads him down the field, and, uh, and, 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 gets the, and, and gets the win with the help from Vinatieri on the kick. But we saw the same thing in the last Super Bowl against the Rams with the Patriots. That was a 3-3 three to three game for like three quarters. And then finally, finally in the fourth quarter, Brady hits Gronk up the sideline for a nice gain. Then he hits Edelman. Then he hits Burkhead. And then he hits Gronk again in near triple coverage for the play of the game. Now, people will tell you Tom Brady didn't even throw a touchdown in that game. He wasn't any good. Tom Brady led the game-winning drive, dog. Okay, because Sony Michelle scored from two yards out on the next play only because it just so happened that Gronkowski did not land in the end zone. He landed on the two-yard line. That's where they touched him down. But don't let the fact that the number next to TDs is zero fool you into thinking that Brady didn't deliver with the game on the line because he did. Okay, he dropped that thing in triple coverage. I mean, come on. Did I mention the comeback he had against the Jacksonville Jaguars? This is very Jordan-esque. Uh, he was down 10 in the fourth quarter up against the number one defense in the league. They called him Saxonville at the time. Y'all remember Saxonville? Y'all remember Saxonville, right? Come on now. We all remember Saxonville. They were good that one year. <laughs> but in all seriousness, they had the pats against the ropes. Gronk got hurt in that game. He was out. Okay? And Brady had to lead a 10-point comeback against the best defense in the league without his number one target and guess what he did it led two touchdown drives to win that game oh and by the way his thumb was halfway sliced off do we remember that do we not remember when he injured his hand just a few days before the game go back and look at the images online of tom brady's hand after He collided with Rex Burkhead's helmet somehow and sliced his hand open. It is a nasty gash on his throwing hand. And like three days later, he's leading a comeback in January against the number one defense in the fourth quarter. Down two scores. This is, I mean, like people, I mean, oh my God. Continuing. The comeback against the Seahawks post deflate gate. Yeah, we'll talk about deflate gate. that, That witch hunt. When everybody thought that somehow we could attribute all of his success and all of his greatness to the fact that there was a, a little bit of air let out of the footballs. How dumb and dense can you be to believe Deflategate was a thing? In spite of that, Brady was down 10 points in the fourth quarter to the Legion of Boom. The same Legion of Boom that eviscerated Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl the year before. And what does he do? He leads them down the field. Two consecutive touchdown drives in the fourth quarter takes the lead, 28-24.
and that was the final. Now, people like to look at that game. They like to point to the Malcolm Butler interception. Malcolm Butler bailed out Tom Brady. Or Pete Carroll bailed out Tom Brady because instead of handing it to Marshawn Lynch, they threw the pass on the one-yard line. People like to point that out and say that Brady got lucky. But they ignore the fact that it was a lucky catch by curse that even got them into that position for that uh, for that touchdown drive. Like Russell Wilson threw a ball down the field and Malcolm Butler was all over the receiver and it somehow got bounced around and, and he pulled it in. Like, like it, that was a lucky catch of all lucky catches. That was right up there with the helmet catch in terms of luck. Nobody can sit, nobody factors that in that if you want to hate on Brady, nobody factors in the luck of that catch, how lucky of a play that was that got Seattle in position to take the lead. If you take that away, maybe Seattle doesn't get that close. We don't get the Malcolm Butler play, but then we're not sitting here talking about how Brady got lucky at the end. You know what I'm saying? You know what was not luck when Tom Brady was going up against Richard Sherman and Bobby Wagner and Cam Chancellor and those dudes and he and Michael Bennett, and he went straight down the field for two consecutive touchdown drives in the fourth quarter. At the time, it was the greatest fourth quarter comeback in Super Bowl history. And he would only surpass it the following season, 28-3. to Against the Falcons in Houston. Maybe that was two years later, but you get the idea. <laughs> 246 yards passing in the fourth quarter and overtime alone against the Falcons. He led five straight scoring drives, three straight touchdown drives to end that game, and he had to convert two fourth quarter, excuse me, he had to convert two two point conversions. One of them was a pass play. This is the fourth quarter in overtime in all 10 of his Super Bowl appearances combined. In 10 games, Brady was 85 of 129, which is 66%. For 921 yards, six touchdowns, only one interception, a 7.1 yards per attempt, and a 99 passer rating. And he led nine lead-taking or game-tying drives. Nine. All right. Again, I mean, like, are y'all are y'all listening? I, I mean, like, I, the, the chips, the money's on the table. It's now or never. And this dude is brilliant with the game on the line in the biggest on the biggest stage. He's brilliant time and time and time again. Jordan has the flu game. We all remember that. Brady. Brady had a flu game. <laughs> he had one. He had a 103 degree temperature the night before the AFC championship game in 2005 against the Steelers in Pittsburgh. I'm going to read you a quote about that game. Shivering with a 103 degree temperature, Brady had an IV in his arm and a bowl of soup beside his bed in room 304 of the four point Sheraton in Pittsburgh. He had a serious case of the flu. Other than the team doctors, only Belichick and Bob Kraft knew how badly Brady was struggling. The next day, on the bus ride from the hotel to Heinz Field, Brady lay across two seats and curled up in the fetal position. With the windshield factor, the temperature was minus one. This would be the coldest game in Pittsburgh in Steelers history. Nonetheless, Brady took the field in pregame warmups, and he wore only shorts and a t-shirt. He felt like hell, but he was determined not to let Pittsburgh or even his own teammates know how ill 
he was. In that game, Brady was 14 for 21, 207 yards and two touchdowns, and they beat a 15-1 Steelers team coming off a 103-degree fever. Many of his great, his great games were in cold weather. He played a lot of games in Foxborough, a lot of games in January, a lot of games in February. Well, the February games are mostly indoors, but a lot of games in January. A lot of important games in December, okay? And he's coming through. We can't say that about Peyton Manning. We can't say that about Drew Brees. Lately, we can't even say that about Aaron Rodgers. But time and time again, when when the chips were down and you you just have to have it, Tom Brady came through. We watched Joe Burrow. We like Joe Burrow. I like Joe Burrow. Okay? Everybody likes Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow had the game in his hand in the Super Bowl against the Rams last year and didn't do nothing with it. This year, he had the AFC Championship game in his hands twice. Didn't do nothing with it in the fourth quarter. This stuff isn't easy, y'all. It's not supposed to be easy. Tom Brady just made it look easy. And now we just have this expectation that anybody can do it. And it ain't true. There's only one of one with this dude, okay? And then getting to the LeBron point of it. Now we covered Wilt. We covered Russell. We covered Jordan. Now the LeBron piece is clearly the longevity, okay? Jay-Z said, never been a nigga this good for this long, this hood, this rock, or this pop, or this strong. That's basically braiding in a nutshell, minus the nigga part. Uh, <laughs> but this is this is Tom Brady, okay? Nobody's been this good this long. I talked about how he walked in winning titles, and he left basically winning titles two years ago on a torn meniscus, by the way. Okay? Did I mention... That in his Tampa years, I put a tweet out a few days ago that got some traction. Tom Brady's Tampa Bay years are insane. The first year, he wins the Super Bowl. COVID year, new team, new offense, new coaches, new teammates, new everything. New surroundings, new everything. New opponents in the division, all that. He walks in the door and wins the Super Bowl in his first year. And he did it beating Drew Brees on the road, Aaron Rodgers on the road, and Patrick Mahomes at the same time. In the same postseason sequence, he beat those three quarterbacks on a torn meniscus. That was the first year. The second year, last year, he put up stats that are basically identical to the stats that Patrick Mahomes is putting up this year, and everybody's in agreement that Mahomes is going to win MVP. I think he is too. And he's deserving. But Brady put up the exact same stats last year. By the way, he was 44 years old last year. And then this year, saddled with a garbage team around him. When everybody said he was trash by his standards, his numbers were identical this year to Justin Herbert's. And everybody loves Justin Herbert. That's, that's all he did in Tampa. He's the all-time leader in games played by a non-kicker or punter. So George Blanda was a part-time quarterback, part-time punter or whatever kicker. If you take George Blanda out, Brady's the all-time leader in games played. And again, I mentioned he broke the record for completions and attempts this year. So the dude can still spin it. We know that. But nobody's been this good this long. Nobody. Brett Favre fell off a cliff that last year. 
uh, to steal a turn from Max Kellerman that he erroneously tried to affix to Brady. You want to know why Max Kellerman did that? He did that because every other quarterback who had ever played in the history of the NFL fell off a cliff at age 40. That was his rationale. And it actually makes sense until you consider that the dude that we're talking about is not from Earth. Okay, he's, he's from another planet. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the, that's that was the, the fly in the ointment of Max Kellerman's hypothesis there. Okay? Tom Brady's not like every other quarterback. But every other quarterback fell off at 40. We're witnessing Aaron Rodgers fall off at 40 right now. Okay? And even if you don't fall off physically, you fall off mentally, emotionally, whatever. And Brady just kept on pushing past that. He's obliterated every passing record there is to have for a quarterback beyond the age of 40. He won two Super Bowls in his 40s. He won one MVP and should have won two MVPs in his 40s. So just like we're watching LeBron break the all-time scoring record at age 38 in his 20th season, and he's averaging 30 points a game, we saw Tom Brady at age 40-plus go to the playoffs every year, compete for championships, win a Super Bowl, win two Super Bowls, I believe, runner-up an MVP, won another MVP. Like, this, I mean, like, again, people don't understand. Y'all not getting it. When I say that he's the greatest athlete in major professional American team sports history, this is why. He's got the longevity. He's got the stats. He's got the titles. He's got the clutch moments. He's got everything. There is no argument to be had by anybody else. There's no argument to be had by anybody else when you talk about the best quarterback. I saw, I saw a clip of Lawrence Taylor on, on uh, the internet the other day. He's on some podcast talking about how Joe Montana is still the guy for him. Really? Joe Montana? On what grounds? The fact that he never lost a Super Bowl? Well, Lawrence Taylor, your team destroyed Joe Montana in a divisional round by like 50 points. That never happened to Brady. He took a, he took a, he took a beating in the playoffs before, but it wasn't that bad. If he's that good, how come he didn't make it to more than four Super Bowls? Why were they so anxious to replace him with Steve Young in San Francisco? Why did he have to go to Kansas City? And what did he do when he got to Kansas City? He took him to one AFC championship game? That's great. It ain't what Brady did. Brady won the Super Bowl in year one in Tampa. Brady should have won MVP last year in Tampa. Like, I don't understand what any other argument could be against Tom Brady. And so I want to wrap this lengthy Brady segment with just a little bit of myth, myth busting. Um, yeah, I, I talked about Tampa. You know, people are saying he went to this all-star team in Tampa. I love, I love how they moved the goalposts. I love how they try to switch the narrative after the fact. Nobody was saying that he was going to an all-star team in Tampa when he went down there. They said, oh, he's got some nice weapons down there. Maybe they may be pretty good. Like, that was it. Nobody was saying, like, oh, this is a slam dunk. They're going to win the Super Bowl. You know who picked them to win the Super Bowl? Me. I did. Nobody else did. What did Jameis do with that team? Where was that team? You know, they said, oh, well, Jameis threw 30, 30 interceptions. What about the year before that? Where was this team? Were they in the Super Bowl conversation? Were they in the playoff mix? No. Okay? That was not an all-star team that he went to. Nobody viewed it that way until after he won. Then all of a sudden, he's got this great supporting cast. The game manager. He's been saddled with a lot of labels over the years. Game manager was another one. 
Uh, here's the here's the flaw with the game manager thing. First of all, his first year, people don't really remember how how much better the offense got in New England once they took Bra- uh, Bledsoe out and put Brady in. But he completed 64% of his passes for 2,800 yards, 18 TDs, 12 picks in his first year. But they don't remember Brady when he was down 13-3 in the fourth quarter of his first playoff game against the Raiders. There's eight minutes left, and he was 9-for-9 on that drive for 60 yards passing. 9-for-9 on that drive. People don't seem to, like, remember that. In the second half and overtime of that playoff game that's known as the tuck rule game, Brady was 26-39 for 238 yards and a rushing touchdown. And then he led the game-winning drive in overtime, of course. Converted multiple fourth downs in a snowstorm, mind you. That was his first playoff game. So when you say he was carried by the defense that first year, mm, not exactly accurate. People like to say that he didn't throw any touch. He only threw one touchdown pass in that first playoff run that he won the Super Bowl in in his second season, first year as a starter. And that's true. He only threw one. It was in the Super Bowl with the Rams to, to the late David Patton. Here's what they don't tell you. He had the rushing touchdown against the Raiders. He led the comeback against the Raiders in, the, in regulation and in overtime, the game-winning drive there. In Pittsburgh, in the first half of the game against the Steelers, he was 12 of 18 for 115 yards, which is pretty good. I mean, it ain't setting the world on fire, but that's a pretty good start to a game. 12 out of 15 for 115 against that Steelers defense, but he got injured. So he didn't play in the second half. So like, oh, he didn't throw any touchdown passes. Well, he missed half of one of the games. But he did have a rushing touchdown, a passing touchdown, and he had to come back in the Super Bowl as well. His, the following season, after they won the Super Bowl, his first full season as a starter, do you know that he led the NFL in touchdown passes? Because he did. All right? So people don't factor that stuff in. And then by the time he went to the Super Bowl in his third year against the Panthers, He's throwing for 300 yards and three touchdowns in that Super Bowl, one of which was to Mike Vrabel, who's a damn linebacker. He's throwing touchdowns to linebackers in the Super Bowl in the fourth quarter. All right? So I don't know how, how people are kind of coming away with this saying that he, got, he, he was carried by his defense to these early championships. It's just not true. In fact, his, first two super, his, his second and third Super Bowl against the Panthers and the Eagles the Panthers game, he was 354, three TDs, one pick, a game-winning drive in that one. Against the Eagles, he was 236, two picks, two touchdowns, no picks, and a game-winning drive in that one as well. So, I mean, that's that's not too bad, I, I don't think. <laughs> According to Tom Brady Facts on Twitter, a great Twitter follow, if you take away his two spikes on the final drive of Super Bowl 36, Tom Brady's passer rating for that game goes from 86 to 92.9. He would have been 16 to 25 for 145 yards and a touchdown with no turnovers. And that was a Rams defense that was ranked seventh in points allowed and third in yards allowed during the 2001 regular season. So again, a 92 passer rating for basically a rookie against that defense in that spot. Pretty damn impressive. I touched on the stuff about him being a, an alleged cheater. (laughs) Look, man, if you think Brady's a cheater because of Deflategate, why don't you read the Wells report? The Wells report says that the Colts' balls were deflated also, and Andrew Luck never got suspended. So I don't know what to tell you. 
what advantage did the Colts have that day with having also having to had deflated footballs? How come they weren't going to the Super Bowl? How come they got blown out that day? How come they got killed in the second half? Why was it that Brady was better in the second half than he was in the first half after they found out that the balls were quote unquote deflated? Why is it that nobody takes into account that you're actually allowed to deflate the footballs? Okay. There's only, this is a limit that you can't go past, but you're allowed to deflate footballs. Okay. Nobody factors in any of this stuff. All right. But he still goes out in Seattle and in spite of all that and beats the Legion of Boom in that Super Bowl. Okay. And then as far as Spygate, the most overblown, overhyped scandal in football history, maybe next to Deflategate. Was people people associate Spygate with the Patriots videotaping practices and all this other stuff. That didn't happen. Okay? That did not happen. Spygate meant that there was a notice put out by the league that said that you cannot record hand signals of the opposing team's sidelines from your sideline. <laughs> you had to do it from a different location. They didn't even say you can't do it. They just said you had to do it from a different location in the stadium. And the Patriots ignored it for one game. That's what they got suspended for. For one game, they ignored that notice that the entire league was doing the year before. That was all Spygate was. It wasn't this whole cockamamie thing, you know, scheme that the Patriots were stealing playbooks and spying in teams' locker rooms and recording practices while I'm take No, that's all bullshit. All right? That's not what happened. But people they don't they can't wrap their head around the fact that this skinny unathletic looking dude from California is beating them in 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 every game. That's what it was. Oh, let's touch on the system quarterback thing. That was my favorite for a long time. Brady's a system quarterback. Because they don't say that about other players. But system quarterback Tom Brady. Uh, well, let's, let's look at his coach. Playoffs included. Bill Belichick, the guy who built the quote-unquote system. He's 249-75 and 75 with Tom Brady, including the playoffs. Uh, without Brady in the playoffs included, he's 80-90. and 90. That's a 47 percent win percentage 80 wins 90 losses that means he wins 47 percent of his games that means he's ray Rhodes. he's ray Rhodes in his career without tom brady and it's not a small sample because that's 170 games we're talking about that belichick has been a head coach without brady that's 10 years of football 10 years and you're winning 47 percent of your games that's the same thing jeff fisher got fired for all right. I'm not saying Belichick's not great, but come on, you know, the, the system never had a name. The system took on, and I'm using air quotes to say system. The system never had the same identity. One year he's throwing short stuff to Julian Edelman. One year he's throwing to two tight ends. One of them is Gronk. The other one is the homicidal maniac. Uh, one year he's throwing deep to Randy Moss. One year he, they're focusing on the run game. Like, it's never the same, but yet somehow it was the system that did it. He goes to another team. He wins the Super Bowl in year one. Okay. So what was the system really? Okay. That 170 games, by the way, that's more than Bill Walsh, John Madden, Jimmy Johnson, and Vince Lombardi for their entire careers. That's how much of a sample we have of Belichick. And he's not Brady. All right. They say that Brady begs for calls. He's protected by the refs and all that stuff. He gets all these flags. Well, that's not true. According to pro football reference, Tom Brady has been Tom Brady's opposing QB has been on the receiving end of more roughing the passer calls than Brady has himself in his career. Brady's gotten 61 roughing the passer calls in his career. His opponent 
at quarterback has gotten 71. And then people say, well, it's, it's not the amount of calls, it's the time in the game. Since 2009, Brady got a rough in the passer in the second quarter against the Colts in, in uh, 2014. He got one in the second quarter against the Chiefs in 2015. He got one in the fourth quarter against the Texans in 16, the fourth quarter against the Chiefs in 18, but both of those games had more than seven minutes left. And then he got one in the first quarter against the Eagles in 2021. So only one of those could you even argue was a, a call that he got that was in a big moment. He only got one rough in the passer call in his playoff career between 2001 and 2007. So like this idea that Brady gets all these calls from the referees is false. It's another false narrative. And I love how people like to act like Tom benefits from this era of protected quarterbacking as if he didn't play and win three Super Bowls in the early 2000s back when you were actually allowed to hit the quarterback. You were allowed to play defense. You were allowed to rough up receivers. You were allowed to play physical, hit guys over the middle, lead with your helmet. All that stuff was legal when Tom Brady came into the league. They lump him in like Lawrence Taylor was doing. They lump him in with these quarterbacks of this era. Even Trent Dilfer did it the other day. They lump him in with these quarterbacks of today's era, like the Mahomes and the Allens, and they, you can't hit the receivers, you can't hit the quarterbacks. No, Brady was a part of the previous generation when you were allowed to do all that stuff. Why does nobody remember this? And then there's a, a thousand stats that show that he's not been carried by his defense like some like to proclaim. In seasons in which Tom Brady's defense ranked 20th or worse in DVOA, Brady has a record of 62 and 18, which is 75%. Again, he wins 75% of his games no matter what. So even when his defense has stunk, he's won 75% of his games. He took a horrendous defense. At the time, it was the worst pass defense by yardage allowed in NFL history. He took to that second Super Bowl against the Giants. And then, not to mention... Brady's defense had a pick six in that first Super Bowl against the Rams. In his other Super Bowls with the Patriots, every other touchdown that was scored by New England was an offensive touchdown that Brady led the drive on. But we've seen other quarterbacks win with defensive touchdowns. We've seen Ben Roethlisberger win Super Bowls with defensive touchdowns. We saw Peyton Manning win when his defense scored or forced five turnovers and won with a pick six. That was Super Bowl 41. Ben Roethlisberger had a 100-yard pick six in Super Bowl 43. Brad Johnson benefited from three pick sixes in Super Bowl 37. Drew Brees had a pick six with three minutes left to seal Super Bowl 44. And Rodgers' defense had a pick six in Super Bowl 45. Okay, we can keep going. Joe Flacco had a kick return for a touchdown. Russell Wilson had a pick six and a special teams touchdown. That was Super Bowl 48. He also had an 87-yard kickoff return. Okay. Peyton Manning's defense returned to fumble for a TD in Super Bowl 50. The, all these other dudes are benefiting from their defense and special teams. They don't say that, though. They only apply it to Brady. And here's one more gem of a stat for the road. So this is as of December 8th of 2022. So just a couple of months ago, this, this is what the stat was. Tom Brady's record when attempting 50-plus passes in a game. Because you know you need balance, right? You know if a, if a quarterback is attempting 50 passes, he's probably trailing in that game, or he probably has no run game to speak of. Either way, it's not good, and you're probably going to lose that game if a quarterback is attempting that many throws. Tom Brady's record when attempting 50-plus passes, 
He's 25 and 12 overall, including the playoffs. That's 67, almost 68% of his games he's won. The rest of the NFL in that time frame is 81, 322, and 5 since 2001. Again, Brady's 25 and 12 in attempting 50 plus passes. The rest of the NFL, 81, 322, and 5. That's less than 20%, a shade under 20%. Brady has 24% of all of the 50 plus pass attempt wins in the NFL since 2001. So when you see these kids on Twitter talking about so and so got carried, this defense carried, Brady got carried, who's doing the carrying? Because Brady seems to be winning a lot of games when the outcome rests solely on his right arm. There's so many more stats out there. I could keep going. This segment has gone on too long. The point is, there's only one Tom Brady. I know we like Mahomes, okay? (laughs) There's only one Tom Brady. The Hip Hop Sports Report Podcast salutes the greatest major American team sport professional athlete in history. Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. Congratulations on the greatest career we've ever seen. He's the best player that we've ever seen. He's the best quarterback that we've ever seen. All right, I just spent all this time running it down to you. I knew it was going to take a while, and it took even longer than what I thought it was. All right? We're going to talk about this year's Super Bowl now. But make no mistake, there is one GOAT, and it's Tom Brady. And it's not close. And I hate it's not close on social media or whatever, but it ain't close, y'all. There's one Brady. Find your favorite quarterback and show me how he matches up to everything that I just told you. So many moments, so many games. I ain't even get to all of them. Like the, the 2018 AFC Championship game against Kansas City. I mean, most quarterbacks would kill to have one game like that. Brady's got 20 of them. Okay? There's no doubt who the GOAT is. Tom Brady's one of one. And we'll miss him. At least I know I will. And so I know this podcast began on February 8th, but some stuff came up, and so now I'm wrapping it up on February 9th. And lo and behold, Kevin Durant got traded overnight. This is how wild podcasting is. Yeah, Kevin Durant got traded to Phoenix. Um, You know, this is the trade deadline now, Thursday, February 9th. Uh, I probably should have waited to the end of the trade deadline to finish this podcast but I wanted to get this out there as quick as I could but yeah man uh, there's about an hour or two left in the deadline before the deadline but Durant got traded you guys know I'm very much pro Chris Paul at this platform not very much pro Kevin Durant but I have to say this is a great deal for Phoenix it's a great deal for Durant and it's a great deal for Brooklyn I think everybody wins Uh, from a Suns standpoint I'm sad to see Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson in particular leave Phoenix. I feel like they're great players. They're great assets to have on any contending team. Any contender would want either one of those guys. But this is kind of a deal that had to be made. You got a new owner coming in. They had to shake things up. I think CP3 will get another crack at it. For his sake and for the son's sake, they just got to pray for good health. What excited me the most about the deal for Phoenix was that they didn't have to give up DeAndre Ayton because he's so good against Jokic, and they're going to need Ayton if they're going to get past Jokic, if they're going to get past Giannis in the finals. They need DeAndre Ayton's size. So the fact that he stayed behind 
is a great get for Phoenix. And they got out of the Jay Crowder situation, which is good for them. It opens up something. Maybe there's one more move they can make. I don't know. But it is great for Durant. Durant gets to revive his career. He gets out of Brooklyn. That was a situation was a mess. I tweeted last week that once Kyrie demanded for a deal, it was very possible that before next Thursday, both Kyrie and Durant could be gone. And here we are. They're both gone from Brooklyn. So Brooklyn needed to get out of that. They needed to start fresh. I think everybody wins. We'll see if there's any more blockbusters that come down. If they do, uh, I'll be sure to talk about them here, even though this podcast has gone on a little bit longer than expected. But what I'm definitely going to do is talk about the Super Bowl. Like Ace Ventura said, Super Bowl time. Man, I'm tired of being right. Right? Y'all remember? So let's get a cracking. Super Bowl 57. Doesn't seem like we're that far into it, but yeah, here we are. So last week, we went 0-2 on our picks. Your boy thought it made sense to to go underdog in both games. It took some courage. It took some stones. It takes some stones to be inaccurate, okay? Whatever, all right? Y'all, I went chalk in the earlier rounds, okay? In the divisional round, I went chalk. This time, I was like, all right, let me, let me pick some upsets. Didn't happen. Uh, I don't personally feel like the 49ers game should count against my record. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Their quarterback got injured like five seconds into the game. They didn't have, they didn't stand a chance. They had Josh Johnson out there. He looked like me out there. He literally looked like he didn't belong. Like like a, a fan won a contest and they pulled him out of the crowd and let him snap the football. That's what Josh Johnson was looking like. He had no business being in that football game. Um, but that's the situation San Francisco found themselves in. Uh, and and the crazy part about it is, y'all, we don't know if Philadelphia is actually better than the Niners. Like. Philly proved nothing. I had multiple people come at me after that Eagles 49ers NFC Championship game two weeks ago, and they were like, I told you so. Eagles, baby, I told you so. It's like, y'all didn't prove anything. Philly proved nothing in that game. Doesn't mean that they're not great. Doesn't mean that they can't win the Super Bowl. In fact, I believe they are the more talented team. But does that mean I'm going to pick them to beat Kansas City? You'll have to wait and see. But we did go 0-2 last week, 0-2 against the spread. We're six and six in the playoffs, five and seven against the spread. Lifetime, eleven and eleven now in conference championship game picks. That's not great. Six and four in the Super Bowl after a win last year when we picked the Rams. So let's see if we can get this one right. But we are eighty and forty-two overall in the history of this website. So that's still pretty good. That's basically two out of every three games I'm picking correctly. Um, so like there would be a Hicks Casino in hotel and casino in Vegas if I was out there um, handicapping, you know what I'm saying, based on my record, winning two-thirds of the time, yeah, I think I would be making some dough. Um, Let's get into it. So we talked a little bit about the NFC. The AFC game was great, came down to the final minutes. Uh, Cincinnati had their chances. They couldn't put it away. Uh, I thought it was funny, though. I haven't heard anybody make this point, but Cincinnati, for all the talk, that they did after the Buffalo game about the bulletin board material that they were given or gifted by virtue of the fact that the NFL and the bills were making plans to have the AFC championship game hypothetically be played in Atlanta against the chiefs. If it came down to that due to the DeMar Hamlin situation and that really offended Cincinnati, right? that people were making plans for the AFC championship game without them. That was bulletin board material and that they cited as fuel for that game. You would think that a team that cited that incident as motivation 
would not be then turning around and giving even more bulletin board material to Kansas City. But then here we have the freaking mayor of Cincinnati calling out Patrick Mahomes. What kind of sense does that make? Eli Apple, right up there with Freddie Mitchell as the most trash player to be talking the most trash in the NFL in recent years. Shout out to Fred X, wherever he's at. He probably works for FedEx at this point. Eli Apple's flying off the handle on social media, calling out everybody. Okay? I don't understand why Cincinnati harbored all that resentment because of the ticket thing and then turned around and handed all this bulletin board material to the Chiefs, talking about Burrowhead and all that stuff. It never made any sense. I picked the Chiefs to win, but I said on the website, you know, Cincinnati's playing with some fire here. Letting the Chiefs have that underdog mentality, even if they weren't really underdogs. And we saw how it worked out. Cincinnati did catch a few bad breaks from the officials, though. Uh, I think, I think we, we could all be adult enough to say that. I'm not saying that the refs were the reason why the Bengals lost the AFC title game. But when you look at some of those calls and non-calls, I mean, hey, man. And I actually felt for dude uh, Osai. Uh, who hit Mahomes on that play at the right at the end of the game, knocked him out of bounds, and I'm actually seeing it right now on television. And he got shoved out. It was a pretty gentle shove. Mahomes goes flying into the bench, throwing his arms back, kind of like um, y'all remember when uh, Robert Ory hip checked Steve Nash, and Steve Nash flew into the scorer's table and threw his arms back. That's how Mahomes looked. Mahomes was really trying to sell it. I do believe Mahomes tried to ease up a little bit as he went out of bounds, trying to. Tice a penalty there and it worked. So I got to, you know, you got to give him props to that. That's, that's a cagey move by the 27 year old quarterback. But I mean, I, you know, it wasn't that hard of a hit, but he did, he did push him out of bounds. So the referees have to throw that flag and it sucks because I hated seeing the game end that way because it became automatic at that point. But I don't appreciate people acting like Patrick Mahomes led some Tom Brady like drive down the field. No, he got, a fantastic kick return of like 25 yards that there were two blocks in the back that weren't called. And then he doesn't do much of anything on the first and second down. And then he runs, maybe he had like a five yard gain. He runs for five yards on third down or whatever it was. And he gets a 15 yard penalty tacked onto it. And that's how they kick the field goal. I'm not about to throw a bunch of parades for Mahomes for that quote unquote fourth quarter drive or whatever, but be that as it may, we did see, Kansas City, I think, got a little bit more of a friendly whistle. But one of the other things that we said on the site was the what we would know within the first couple of series what type of afternoon it was going to be in terms of the Bengals' ability to hold up under intense pressure from the Chiefs' pass rush. And as it turns out, Burrow was getting knocked around all over the place at the start of that game. And that was foreshadowing for things to come because Chris Jones ultimately ended the game we ended Cincinnati's last scoring drive with a sack, and that was a problem all game long for Cincinnati. Uh, and while we're on the subject of officiating, uh, I just want to point out, here's my proposal for, for new officiating rules. Officials, they come under fire a lot, and, you know, they stink, okay? Roger Goodell just went out there yesterday and was like, I think the officiating is as good as it's ever been. It's like, come on, man. This is why nobody likes you, Goodell, because you say stupid stuff like this. Here's my proposal for new officiating rules. Because every time they go to they go to the owners meeting in the offseason and they try to tweak the rules, they tweak the rules of some unnecessary stuff like the overtime rule. That didn't need to be changed. They didn't need to change that, but of course they did it. 
Here's what I suggest. Rule change number one. Eliminate the ball fumble through the end zone thing that they call right now. That that football goes through the back of the end zone that leads to the opposing, the defense getting the ball back. Can we just throw that rule in the garbage and throw it down the incinerator? Why does that exist? Okay? You're basically giving the defense a reward of a fumble recovery when they did not actually recover the fumble. Like, how, how was that possible? The ball fumbles out of the end zone and you just hand it back to the defense? They didn't recover it. If anything, the offense, they're right on the doorstep of scoring a touchdown. So that penalty is way too punitive on the offense. They, they want to do all these things to promote offense. The offense should keep the ball in that situation. Maybe just have it be a loss of down and you put the ball back at the 20. So if, the, if, you, if you score on a, on, a, on a second down and the ball is fumbled out of the end zone when you're about to score, you get the ball back, but it's now third down and you're at the 20-yard line. Like, I think that's a reasonable punishment for fumbling it through the end zone and out of bounds. But to give the ball back to the defense is, in, is insane. Nobody likes that rule, and they just refuse to change it. That's rule number one. Rule number two, defensive pass interference, okay? DPI, I have a, a beef with that because it's, it has too much of an impact on the game. We talked about the one uh, Mahomes drive from the AFC Championship game. Think back to the Super Bowl that Mahomes won a few years ago against San Francisco. He threw that lucky pass to Tyreek Hill, okay, on third and 15. He did the 17-step drop, closed his eyes, and threw it down the, down the field to Tyreek Hill, who just happened to be open, right? And then on that same drive on a third down uh, from, I think, around the 20-yard line, they got a pass interference call in the end zone. That put him right on the goal line, and that flipped the game, Okay. Pass interference, defensive pass interference needs to be 15 yards, just like it is in college. Or if we can't make it so that it's 15 yards and it has to be a spot foul, then it should be reviewable. And I know that that would drag the game out or whatever, but like, you know, just to throw the ball down the field and then have it a subjective pass interference call for a 60 yard gain is too much. You don't even know if that guy was open that he would have caught the ball. Have we seen guys drop wide open passes before? Yes, all the time. We see it all the time. So you can't just assume that that player would have caught the ball had he not been interfered with. Therefore, you cannot just grant him the yardage based on the spot where the, where the foul occurred. So if you're going to make it a spot foul, it should be reviewable. You should be able to challenge it, and then they can go back and look at it. Or just make it 15 yards. And my last rule change, every defensive foul should not result, result in an automatic first down. That's my other one. Okay, because right now it's like illegal contact, five-yard penalty, and an automatic first down. And it's like, come on, man. Like, how many drives are you going to keep alive? We saw that with San Francisco in the NFC Championship game. They had a key drive that they were trying to get Philly off the field, and they just penalized their way down the field. Now, they were legit penalties. So, you know, that's on San Francisco for, you know, hey, how about you stop committing penalties, right? But every defensive penalty should not mean an automatic first down. Maybe just make it a five-yard penalty and then just repeat the down or, or, you know, go to the next down or whatever. So I apologize for a quick sidebar on that. Um, so looking at Kansas City real quick, though, I think a lot of people are taking victory laps on Tyreek Hill. I mentioned a minute ago that Tyreek had that huge play in the 49ers Super Bowl about three years ago. And, and Mahomes' numbers have looked better this year, surprisingly, than they did even when he had Tyreek Hill last year. So I think that that's a great testament to Andy Reid, to Patrick Mahomes, and to that Chiefs offense. They fixed the offensive line up quite a bit, 
and they've made a lot of strides, which is fantastic. But I still don't know if we've seen the absence of Tyreek really tested or challenged yet. Okay. Cause teams have struggled to take Travis Kelsey out of the game, out of the passing game. We'll see. Philly had two weeks to get, take him out. Let's see if they can do it. But Kelsey's still getting open. He's still catching hundred yards a game. He's still catching touchdowns. We haven't seen Kansas city fall behind by two or three scores like they used to, which is good for them. But like, when when they when they started this mini dynasty or whatever you want to call it this fake dynasty that they're trying to convert to a real one they were falling behind in playoff games by quite a bit they were down 24 to nothing against Houston once at home they're not i don't think they're winning that game without Tyreek Hill the threat of Tyreek Hill has so much more impact which is compounded by the skill of Tyreek Hill himself and so it changes the dynamic and the schematics of the football field and the defense. It just tilts the field in a way that cannot be replicated, not by any Juju Smith-Schuster or Marquez Valdez-Scantling, okay? Now, having said that, Kansas City's done great to get back to this point. I did not think they would get back to the Super Bowl this year before the season, and I thought them missing Tyreek Hill would have come up and been more of an issue to this point, but it hasn't been, so good on them. But what if they fall down to Philly? What if they fall down to Philly with that pass rush that the Eagles possess? Are they going to be able to come back and strike quickly? Are they going to be able to tilt the field in such a way where it gives Kelsey and those other guys one-on-one opportunities to make plays? I don't, I don't know. But we'll see if that actually comes into play this week. KC will have been very fortunate if they can go the entire season without that scenario really looming as something that they might end up missing. On the flip side, I don't think the Eagles have been tested at all, all year long. And what's funny about that is we we pointed out the quarterbacks that the Eagles have faced this season on the site. And, and we did that ahead of the curve. I noticed a lot of other outlets have been talking about the opposing quarterbacks the Eagles have faced since we put that in our column. Am I saying that they all read it and then just regurgitated it without giving your boy any credit? I don't know, man, but if you want to throw a citation my way, I'm not going to turn it down. I'm just saying. But the Eagles have not played anybody worth a quarter at the quarterback position outside of Dak and Aaron Rodgers going back to all season pretty much. It's, 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 it's wild. So between that and between a facing a overmatched Giants opponent at home and Josh Johnson at home in the NFC Championship game, like, how are we to know what the Eagles are? We don't. We, this, is, this has been the easiest road to the Super Bowl I can ever remember for any football team. And that's, that would scare the bejesus out of me if I was an Eagles fan. The fact that this team has not really been tested all season. I'm not saying they're not good. The Eagles are an excellent football team. Again, I believe they have the far more complete team in this matchup. But y'all haven't faced any adversity Jalen Hurts missed a couple games. Okay, woo-woo. They played in a, you know, an okay division, but, you know, Dak Prescott got hurt too. If Dak Prescott doesn't get hurt, the Cowboys probably win that division. Now the Eagles have some road playoff games. Now we have a little bit of adversity. They didn't have that. The Eagles had everything locked up in week 12. They haven't played a meaningful football game in like three months. And except for the playoff games, which I just mentioned, were, were a joke. The first two playoff games were a joke. So 
Now they're supposed to go up against Mahomes. And by the way, Rodgers and Dak actually put up numbers against this Eagles defense. So for all the sacks, 70 plus sacks that this team has racked up this season, and for all of the, you know, CJ Gardner Johnson, I think he was leading the league in interceptions at one point. For all that, this defense may still be able to get lit up by Mahomes and Andy Reid. So it's a tough call. It, it really is. I find it interesting that Kansas City's core. This is a team that's gone to three Super Bowls in the last five years, five consecutive AFC Championship games at home. And their core is Mahomes, Andy Reid, Travis Kelsey, and Chris Jones. The offensive line is better. But we're basically talking about three dudes and a coach. And I can't believe that three dudes and a coach would be like this dominant for this long, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess, I guess New England was dominant with basically just Brady and Belichick. I guess, but it just seems odd that you know a cornerstone tight end, as good as Kelsey is, shout out Cleveland Heights, a, a cornerstone tight end, a cornerstone defensive tackle, and a quarterback would be enough to have this much success. But I don't know, man. I, I, I think Kansas City has something here. I'm usually, when it comes to these games, I'm usually more tempted to lean towards the team with the better defense, specifically the the team with the better uh, pass rush. I mean, the team that can get after the quarterback, that's typically the way to go. Even above the quarterback himself, unless Brady's involved, even above the quarterback himself, you'd want the team with the better defensive line, the team that can get after the opposing quarterback more. That is probably the best indication of who's going to win. Who's, who wins in the trenches? I mean, this is, I'm from Ohio, man. This is what football is, okay? The team that's better in the trenches wins 90% of the games. And it has less to do with the skill of the quarterback than we give it credit for, unless the GOAT's involved. I feel like, I don't think it's a slam dunk that Mahomes is going to go in here and ball out. I don't know how, what kind of condition his ankle is in. And I don't know what kind of condition Jalen Hurts' shoulder is in. But, even though Philly has like four or five guys with more than 10 sacks on the season and Hassan Reddick has been a beast this season, we know that Kansas City has a knack for pulling out these games. And if it's close late, I don't think the Eagles have the experience needed to pull this thing out. They don't have Mahomes, but beyond that, they don't have the big game experience. Kansas City's been taking every team's best shot for the last three or four years. They have the quarterback that we know can make magic happen on occasion. Now, having said that, it should be noted that Patrick Mahomes has not been stellar in a Super Bowl. And don't let anybody try to tell you that he has, because that's a common misconception that I'm seeing, is that people think he was phenomenal in that San Francisco Super Bowl. He was not. For 53 minutes, he had a bad game. In the fourth quarter, he had one lucky drive. Then he had one legit drive for a touchdown. And then uh, Damian Williams broke a long TD run. And then people look at it like, wow, Mahomes, 21 points in the fourth quarter. Like, nah, like that wasn't, no, that wasn't special. Okay, that wasn't. They won the game. He was not special that day. And then he was not special against Tampa the next year. I'm not giving him a ton of credit for falling sideways and throwing great or pretty incompletions. I'm not going to give him a ton of credit for that. Okay. Even though it's, you know, he did do those things. I'm just not about to sit here and crown him because he threw a bunch of nice looking incompletions. So 
if you look at the statistics, he was awful in that game against Tampa. And he threw two picks that day, too. In fact, while I'm on the subject, just to kind of bring a full circle, in his two Super Bowls, Patrick Mahomes has a passer rating of 64.2 with 556 yards, two touchdowns, and four interceptions. Now, am I trying to say that, that – am I trying to suggest that Mahomes is not that guy? No, I do think he's that guy. But I'm also saying that he has not been stellar in this game. So if he's not stellar in this game, we need to call it what it is. He's like 0 for 3 in Super Bowls in terms of how good of, how good of a quarterback he was. If they lose, he will have been 1 and 2 with maybe, you know, assuming he's bad or not himself on Sunday – and they lose, that would make him 1-2 and two in the Super Bowl with three bad performances. Okay? So that means we could pump the brakes on all the GOAT talk with Mahomes. What has Mahomes done in the two years since I told y'all that he is the product of a great system? Okay? And maybe product is too strong of a word. But I told you guys in January of 2021 that Patrick Mahomes benefited tremendously from the situation that he fell into in Kansas City. The coach, the system, the the quarterback who was ahead of him, Alex Smith, the weapons that he had, all of it benefited Mahomes. And he was the best quarterback to ever fall in the best situation. This is the best situation any great quarterback has stepped into. And so it's not that Mahomes isn't great, but it's that he benefited from his situation more than anybody. And he took advantage of it, and so good for him. But, you know, what's changed since then? He got an MVP award this year. He made it back to the AFC Championship game this year. Um, was better than his numbers would suggest. Based on, or He had a great game uh, a couple of weeks ago on, on, on the bad ankle. But that last game-winning drive was not impressive to me. And then last year's AFC Championship game cannot be stricken from the record where he sucked in the second half, threw a pick in overtime, and his team lost the game at home after they had like a 21-point lead or whatever it was. So Mahomes is not as untouchable as people make it out to be, but I think he's damn good. And the Kansas City Chiefs should have an advantage at that position coming into this game. But what impresses me the most about the Chiefs is their resolve and their ability to win these close games. This used to belong to the Patriots. It now belongs to the Chiefs. They have that mystique about them. They have that certain it quality that even if they're up against a team that's better than them on paper, they have a way to pull these games out. So if this game is a blowout, I think the only way that Philly can win this game is if they blow out Kansas City. But if this game is close late, which I think it will be, I think the Chiefs managed to pull it out. So on the record, on the record, I'm picking the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. Even though I believe the Eagles are a better team and I believe the Eagles should win the game. And if the Eagles did blow out Kansas City, I would not be stunned. I really wouldn't. But I think the Chiefs are going to find a way. Because that's just what they do. They, they manage to find ways to win these close games. And we've never seen Philly in a close game. We don't even know what they look like in a close game. But it'll be interesting to see what the narratives will be should, specifically should Kansas City lose. Because I, I, I don't want to hear about Mahomes and his GOAT talk if he has three straight underwhelming Super Bowl appearances. If, you, if he goes one touchdown, two picks, five sacks... You know, 50% completions and they lose by 15 points. No, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't give a damn if he's on one leg or not, okay? I don't want to hear it, all right? So that that's, that's our quick analysis of Super Bowl 57. We're going to go with the Kansas City Chiefs. I don't do scores. I don't do props. I don't do none of that stuff. 
I'll just tell you who I think is going to win the game. Um, last I checked, let's see what the line is. So I'm seeing Philadelphia minus one and a half. So I will take the underdog Chiefs to win and cover. And who knows? Any outcome or no outcome would surprise me. I, I don't think I'd be surprised by a Philly blowout. I, but what would surprise me if it's a close game and Philly's able to out-execute Kansas City at the end and win. I think that would be the only outcome that would really catch me off guard. But we'll see. Um, so thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I know this was a long one. This was a long one, but there was so much to get to. The GOAT, Tom Brady, retiring. He made so many teammates better. That's what Bill Belichick said on Brady's podcast earlier this week. He made so many guys better, which is true. Um, you should go out and listen to that as well, but not before you listen to this podcast. So thank you very much. Holla at us at the show. Uh, holla at me on on uh, Twitter, at HHS Report. Find us on Facebook. Like, subscribe, tell a friend about it. I told you all, communicate with the show. Let us know what you want to hear about. If you have questions or on a specific topic you want to hear me touch on, I'd love to hear it. I appreciate you all listening. Enjoy the Super Bowl and the trade deadline. So much to get to even after that. We'll be back at you pretty soon. We love you all. Peace.